welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So I guess if you are a follower of the show, you will have noticed that there has been a certain dearth of episodes over the past couple months. And that is because I've been doing this strange, unaccountable thing, which is generally called enjoying one's life. Yeah, I know, I know. It sounds weird. It's sort of unprecedented for a graduate student, all that sort of stuff. But it's what I've been up to this summer. So no Cognitive Revolution episodes, a little bit of uh, PhD work. I will say that uh, all that's gone pretty well, everything like that. But um, I'm back. It's time to get back into things. Uh, between you and me, I've still got some traveling going on in September. Uh, but uh, it, 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 uh, it's time to start releasing episodes again. This one is one that I'm super excited to kick off with. He, he's one of my favorite psychology professors. Just that's just that's how I describe it. Uh, it is Jay Van Babel. He his official title is associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU, and he just does really cool work on intergroup neuroscience um, and uh, you know how we understand and interact with people who are from different social groups and it's a big topic that I really like myself and um, uh, that's sort of my research area and I've drawn a lot of inspiration from Jay's work and he's just one of the most beloved social psychologists that I know of uh, in general. He's got a great Twitter following uh, at uh, Jay Van Babel, uh, Jay Van Babel. And uh, he's surprisingly useful on Twitter. That's not something I think or say about very many Twitter accounts, but uh, he's definitely worth a follow on there. And um, yeah, the occasion for this podcast was that Jay, uh, along with his colleague Dominic Packer of Lehigh University, has written a book. It is called The Power of Us. Uh, I read it. It's excellent. And I'd say, you know, uh, if you're looking for the state of the union on intergroup neuroscience and psychology, man, this is the book right here. I think, uh, you know, like this is an area of research that I encountered, you know, quite a few years ago. And I, you know, think back on the books that really made a difference for, you know, opening my mind to that area of research. I think if I had read this book um, during that time, it would count among those as well. So if it's it's something that you're interested in understanding better and getting into that sort of stuff, the whole intergroup um, social psychology perspective, this is a great, great book to do that. Uh, and Jay is a great person to uh, follow on Twitter and also through his newsletter, which um, is, is cool that he's doing that. I think it's a great thing for an author to be doing right now and to you know, support uh, his book. And it is called, you can find it at powerofus.substack.com. I uh, definitely recommend uh, checking that out as well as the book. You can follow Jay on Twitter. Uh, so yes, um, before we get to the show, I'll also say that you can also check out my newsletter, which I'm also trying to get off uh, the ground. And you can find that at codycommerce.substack.com. And uh, I've got some cool stuff on there for social psychology. I've got a biographical piece on, on, on Gordon Alpert. I've also got some stuff for people who are interested in applying to graduate school. Uh, one of the main things is, is for Americans who are interested in applying to UK programs, as I did and totally screwed up. Um, so uh, I just put down some of the pointers that I wish someone had told me back when I was applying. 
At any rate, uh, those are a couple Substacks for you to check out. If you haven't checked out Substack yet, it's definitely one of the key pieces of pieces of the the future of, of how writing is going to be disseminated and distributed. But so you can check out Jay's at powerofus.substack.com. You can check out mine at codycommerce.substack.com. So at any rate, uh, this was a fun conversation. Jay is super fun to talk to. I've met him a few times in person and it's always been a pleasure. So it was great to reconnect. Uh, and I know you're going to enjoy this conversation or you're going to enjoy his book. So without any further ado, here is Jay Van Baby. So the uh, first thing that I usually like to ask, and this is something you even mentioned in the book, is, is where did you grow up? I grew up in Fox Creek, Alberta, which is about... It's in the middle of nowhere, actually. It's about three hours north of Edmonton, which is, you know, the northernmost big city in the world. And so I grew up surrounded by trees. There was no uh, radio station there. There was no movie theater. Um, So it's a small town of about 2,000 people in the middle of uh, the frontier of uh, northern Alberta and Canada. Yeah. So did you did you like it there when you were growing up or were you like, man, I need to get the hell out of here? It's it's funny because I'm in pretty much the exact opposite place of the world, you know, downtown Manhattan now. And I, I loved growing up there and I never would have wanted to move uh, to a place like this. And yet now I'm here and I love it here. So I just think I am somebody who's probably super adaptable and like dispositionally like uh, optimistic and positive. So I think that's, you know, I look back on every place I lived and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, your parents, what were they like? Um, so my parents uh, were great. Um, my mom worked for Fish and Wildlife, and, and so the government job. And uh, my stepdad worked in the oil field industry, which is basically what paid for Fox Creek to exist. It was like in the middle of the oil fields of Alberta. And so it was like a heavily blue collar town. Um, most people there like had some relationship to the oil field industry or you wouldn't have moved there. I mean, it's just like in the middle of nowhere. So that's kind of what brought everybody to the set, to the town. Yeah. All right. So, okay. So you're in this sort of oil town in rural Northern Canada. How did you get interested in, in, in psychology? When did that start? Yeah. So, you know, I'm mainly where I am because I failed at a bunch of other things actually. I, when I started college, I wanted to go into criminology. And I, I think I really wanted to grow up and be Clarice Starling um, from Silence of the Lambs. I watched that movie when I was in high school and it just seemed so fascinating. And so I was really interested in kind of the psychology of profiling criminals. And then when I went to do my undergraduate degree, at, you know, you're supposed to do like a major in sociology or psychology or something like that. And then you would apply to transfer into the criminology program. And it was super competitive and I applied both my first two years and did not get in. And so I couldn't do a degree in criminology uh, simply because I wasn't competitive enough. Huh. So it, you were going for the Clarice Starling look and you wanted to hang out with uh, Hannibal Lecter, similar folk. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that, didn't, that didn't quite work out. So what was your, did you have a backup plan? Did you have like a moment of like, oh, I guess I'll, I'll do something else or, or what, what sort of determined the next, the next step for you? I think I just got lucky and stumbled into a couple social psychology classes. And uh, I managed by my, by my fourth year to get into labs uh, with people like Jeff Schimmel, who is a so- experimental social psychologist and Kim Knowles. 
uh, and people, my minor is in sociology. So I worked with a social psychologist in sociology, um, David Pierce, and it was just hooked me. Um, I, I had also considered obviously clinical psychology, which I think every undergraduate psychology uh, student considers at some point. And I worked in my summers and my part-time job was like counseling families and, and youth who were troubled. And, and I loved that work, um, but I just fell in love more with uh, the social psychology piece and running experiments. Yeah, so you started getting interested in social psych. And did you have a moment where I was like, um, all right, research, this is something I'm going to do, pursue academia directly. So how, how did you find yourself pursuing a PhD in psychology? So I took a year off and worked doing research. And so I, my first two jobs after graduating college were uh, working for uh, Northern Alberta Alliance and race relations. And so it was going into schools and talking to kids about racism and prejudice and, and trying to convince them you know, to abandon some of their stereotypes. And one of the things I kept finding over and over again was that uh, you would you know, challenge or debunk a false belief they had about some social group the main source of prejudice in Canada for a lot of these kids was Aboriginals. And then they would just come up with another one. And so it was something that made you realize like, what's going on here? Why do they keep resisting updating their feelings about these groups? And that was something that made me realize how important the psychological piece was uh, to these issues. If you're going to get through to people, even young people, and uh, that's one of the things that motivated me to study things like uh, implicit bias, uh, and motivated cognition. And then my other job uh, after, after that position was working for the Alberta government in children's services and doing research for them. And I have to admit, I loved the research. I loved thinking about how it affected policy, um, but it wasn't challenging. You know, it was, if you ever have a chance to work outside of academia, sometimes you'll find that uh, they're happy enough just to get means uh, plotted in a bar graph and they really don't care to go beyond that. And so I felt like I was, you know, overqualified and underchallenged, and I wanted to do more rigorous research and also have the creative freedom to study the questions that I cared about. I found myself, you know, not as interested in the questions of the projects that they would assign me to. And so that was kind of the thing that pushed me to go back and do my PhD. Nice. And then, so when, during the course of graduate school, or even beyond, did you feel, did you feel that your own research program was starting to take shape and taking this sort of general observation about the flexibility of, you know, intergroup processing and how we categorize people and, and how all that can change from applying it to some, you know, direct line of research? Yeah, I, the thing that happened for me is I had a, you know, an unusual path. You know, as you know, I just said, I, I worked in research in different capacities before going back to do my PhD. But when I arrived in graduate school, I started working with an intergroup relations researcher who is a senior scholar, Ken Dion, and he was my mentor for my first year. And then he tragically passed away at the end of my first year of graduate school. And I was, you know, orphaned in the department as, as I tried to figure out what I was going to do from there. And we had a brand new faculty member, Will Cunningham, who had arrived and he was using social neuroscience and I had already started an outside project with him. And he took me on and, and encouraged me and supported me to kind of look at the role of social identity in these processes, you know, um, that if you can get people to think of themselves in different ways and more inclusive identities that it would alter their implicit biases. And so I started a project with him right away. And, and when I moved into his lab, uh, I kind of 
went deep down that rabbit hole of trying to understand those types of issues. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And then, uh, so uh, what, it sounds like your relationship with Will Cunningham was really impactful on your career and that it was really sort of fruitful for your, your later your later work. So I'm curious, when you look back on that relationship and, and his role as a mentor in your life, is there anything that you in particular learned from that that you implement in your own lab and, and that sort of stuff? Yeah, one thing that Will is truly amazing at is um, thinking really broadly and critically and with an open mind. And so it was regularly the case that we'd get data and he would update his thinking as he got the data and you would see it in real time. Um, and so he would start with questions and hypotheses and theories, but he was always willing to update once he designed a study and, and got new data. And that was something that was just as a young scientist, really inspiring that open-mindedness. Um, he also had a, an incredible ability to be self-critical uh, to the point where it was you know, hard to write a paper with Will when I was a graduate student because we'd design a study, we'd be all excited, you know, we'd spend six months or a year getting the data and then it would come in and, and we'd be excited to write up what we found. And then um, as you're writing it, he would just increasingly be critical of it as it went through every stage of revisions. Um, and sometimes to the point where he would become disenchanted with it as it got close to submission. And so as a, as a grad student, that was really stressful because your hardest critic, you know, was, your, was in your own lab. Um, and if I would give like a talk at our brown bag or something like that in the department, Will always asked the hardest questions of me and he always knew all the weaknesses in my research. Um, so, so it was really good for making the research better and, um, you know, improving my thinking and making me very comfortable, you know, in the rest of my career, whenever I give talks anywhere, I always feel like, you know, as long as Will's not there, I'll be fine. <laughs> um, and so it ended up being a really great uh, type of experience in terms of like building my uh, capacity to handle data that didn't fit my preconceived notions, uh, to be self-critical uh, of my own work and uh, prepare me for the types of challenges and criticism you get once you, you know, go out into the world, once you're a uh, professor somewhere, you know, you go around and give talks constantly and you're on your own at that point. You don't have your mentor to help hold your hand and, and review your talks before you give them. And so Will kind of ingrained in me a, a way of thinking and approaching work um, that is really critical to the way that I run my own lab. And so I think, you know, that was indispensable. If, if he had been closed-minded, um, not critical of our own work and not challenged me, I don't think I would have been successful once I got an academic job uh, at I wouldn't have had any hope, I don't think, without that. Nice. And so um, if I have the timeline right here, then you, you do your postdoc at The Ohio State University. And this is where we sort of, um, we, we sort of meet you at, uh, in, in, in the introduction to your book, you and your co-author, Dominic Packer. This is when you guys meet. And um, yeah, it sounds like that relationship has taken you quite far in life. That you guys have done a lot of things together. Can you say a little bit about that um, really lovely academic and, and personal friendship that you have with, with Dominic Packer? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I obviously have a new book coming out with Dominic uh, and the preface of the book. So if you start reading the book, it starts the first paragraph of our entire book starts with he was a first year graduate student. It was, he was actually at Toronto when we first met. And he was a year ahead of me and I showed up and they, my advisor just told me, 
here's a big office space in the basement and actually in the sub basement, which is the basement below the basement. <laughs> and he said, just pick, pick a desk. And I walked in, I looked around and I picked this desk, you know, about five feet away from Dominic. And he had this whole room to himself down there with three desks and it was just all his. And I grabbed it and I could just tell that he was a bit annoyed that I had grabbed the desk and he was losing his, you know, exclusive office. And then, um, you know, about a week or two later, I was in this really, really tiny apartment because Toronto is very expensive. And I had all this uh, hockey equipment because I played goalie, you know, my whole life and I wanted to keep playing. So I brought all my hockey equipment with me and I had no room for it in my apartment. So I brought in my office and imagine an office mate, you know, coming in and taking some of the space in your office and then bringing in their uh, stinky hockey equipment. And I, he just, Dominic was not pleased with me. And we had about six months where I was there and I would try to strike up conversation and he would just kind of, you know, answer me in one word answers and kind of ignore me. And, um, and then, you know, slowly he was warming up to me. And, and there was a moment where we were at, uh, we had a guest speaker, a colloquium speaker. And then it was one of those moments where the graduate students could take the speaker out for lunch and we got funding to do that. And then there'd be a big wine and cheese reception, you know, with all the faculty and graduate students and postdocs and they would have it catered and there would be, you know, um, you know, you know, beer and wine there and free food. And so I was a poor graduate student. So I loved those things. And, and it felt really fancy for, you know, a kid from Fox Creek to go to a wine and cheese reception. So we're there and I'm talking and I started choking on a cube of cheese in my throat. And I lost all air, you know, to my brain. And I, uh, you know, remembered from all these safety videos from when I worked in the oil field about most people when they're choking, their instinct is to like, be embarrassed and like go somewhere private to try to deal with it. And that's how you die if you choke, by the way. And so they tell you in safety videos, never do that. That's if you die from choking, that's how you'll die. And so I went behind the bar and the bartender like couldn't understand me, but eventually I communicated to him with my body language that he needed to help like give me the Heimlich. And he kind of helped a little bit, um, but I then grabbed Dominic's hand and like, I could barely talk. And I dragged him, you know, across the hall into the men's room and had to get him to give me the Heimlich maneuver and I was dying and he did it and uh, I was saved and it was a really weird shared moment <laughs> together. And I, I, you know, I still think it's, it's pretty hilarious. I think at the time he was horrified. He thought that he didn't know quite what he was doing and thought I might die. And so um, that was something that bonded us. And so, uh, you know, from then forward, we would spend our mornings bouncing off ideas, sharing papers we'd read, designing studies, doing lip reviews. He was a year ahead of me, so he helped me analyze my data. He was the person who really uh, introduced me to social identity work and theory. And so we ended up doing lots and lots of projects and papers together and then became great friends and, and now decided to write this book, summarizing all the things that we'd learned over the years um, in a way that is written so that anybody could read it, um, you know? So my family could read it, so undergraduate students could read it, so, you know, somebody off the street might pick it up. And if they wanna learn about groups and get smarter about how groups operate or, or be part of smarter groups, whether they're like coaching their daughter's soccer team or, or you know, leading uh, organization, that they'll have the tools to understand kind of what's going on. What are, what are the core ways that, you, that groups go wrong and what can you do to nudge them in a healthier direction? Yeah. So getting back to, to Dominic, what uh, was there a moment or was there something that you guys did together where you're like, wow, we really feel like we're good at collaborating? Because I mean, it's one thing to sort of like be in the same room and analyze some data together. 
it's another to have such a sort of parallel career path and 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 and, and work long term collaboratively, and ultimately to write a book together, which is such an intimate experience, almost you know, sh- short of having a child together, but you know, in 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 that uh, you know that that sort of realm. So what? When did you start to sense that that developing between you guys? Uh, it was probably a lot of things. So one thing that we started as a project was something I originally started with Will. Um, on Will's very first, Will Cunningham, my advisor, his very first day at University of Toronto, I met him at the building and he didn't even have keys then. So we, we couldn't even get in. And, and it was a Saturday. It was his first day where he was employed by the university, but it was a Saturday and he wanted to meet and get projects going. So I met him at the building and he, could, he had no key, so he couldn't go in. So we met at a cafe and I had all these ideas to pitch him because I really wanted to try social neuroscience. And I thought he'd reject you know, most of my ideas. So I had plan A, plan B, plan C. And I pitched him plan A and it was using, putting people in, in groups, uh, you know, like minimal groups of mixed race and seeing if that gets rid of racial bias. And he loved it. And so I never even pitched him the other ideas because we immediately designed the project and started. And then once we got going and I you know, uh, wanted to do an fMRI study, by then I was talking to Dominic a lot about it. And Dominic was having me read all this work on social identity. And so we asked him to join the project and he was really instrumental in, in uh, making us think deeper about those issues. And it, it was great. So Dominic's strengths were complementary to mine. Like he had some expertise in some different literatures. And it, it was one of those things where I'm, if you look at my, all my publications, none of them are sole author papers. I think better, I think more creatively. My ideas are better when I work with other people. I'm really good at generating ideas, but making them better by bouncing them off people. And so he was always a fantastic person to bounce ideas off and they would always get better and uh, make me think in more interesting ways and, and deeper ways. And so he just had that capacity with a complementary expertise, but also uh, was just fantastic to always bounce ideas off of. And, and he has a different way of thinking about things. In some ways, the way Dominic thinks is probably like a 1950s or 60s social psychologist. Um, like he reads all the old stuff. It's always great about connecting back to that work. Um, and so he has really kind of a deep, deep knowledge in those areas in a way almost no other grad students I've ever met do. Um, and I think my strength is kind of always being like, what are the new ways to look at it using fMRI or now I'm using a lot of com- computational social science approaches. And so we end up, I, I think one of the things that's going to be nice about our book, and I, I actually was, you know, you never know how it's going to turn out, but at the end, I was really proud of it. And I think it's because we, I read it and I'm like, how did this get written? It's way better than I remember. And I think it's because we have that mind meld with these different, different layers of, of his is this kind of deeper theoretical depth and mine is this more like fresher uh, take. And the combination of them is it comes across in my mind really well, um, way better than I had hoped. So I think that's just when you have a collaborator, like maybe my main thing would suggest in addition to just collaborate with someone you like being around and enjoy their company. The second thing would be collaborate with someone who makes you better, who has skills or ways of thinking that are different from yours and brings out your strengths. And uh, those, I have lots of collaborators like that at this point, lots of students and former students, but Dominic and Will were my first two collaborators who kind of like really felt like I was always growing when I was talking to them. Yeah, so your book is The Power of Us, and I think you're dead on. It, it is so readable. 
uh, which is one of the things you were saying that you were going for in this is that it, it just is, is so smooth and so easily graspable. And so I think you guys did a great job on that. And uh, yeah, so when, when did you decide, okay, uh, I'm ready to write a book. This is what I want to do. And this is approximately what I want it to look like. When did, when, what was that sort of thought process, that decision like? So, so that's another good story. Uh, I was visiting, so Dominic was a new professor at Lehigh University, which is about an hour outside of New York. And we both, you know, are going through life stages at the same time. We both had kids about the same age. So I would go out and visit him, you know, every couple months, just hang out, visit. And we were just chit-chatting and he was telling me he was part of a local community book club. He's the type of guy who like joins his neighborhood book club, right? With all his neighbors. And, um, and so he was telling me about a book he had read in the book club and it was a social science pop psychology type of book. And he's like, we read it for my book club and I asked how it was. And he said, it was really well written and interesting, but it, but any, he's like, anybody could have written it. You just open JPSP and you could pick 10 studies and write a chapter on each of them. And I, and I thought that that was kind of a dismissive thing to say about this. This was a New York Times bestselling book. I thought this was pretty, you're not giving the author enough credit, at least the author, you know, put it all together in a book format. I said, I could never do that. You know, it's just so daunting to weave together all these studies and stories and papers in a comprehensive framework. And he said, of course you could. And I, and I was shocked and I said, no. And I said, what would I write a book on? And he said, well, you'd write a book on your research on like identity and how it affects the way people think and act and the brain and all these things that you study in your lab. And that was the first moment where the wheels started turning in my brain. I had never thought of myself as someone capable of writing a book. And so later that day, I was driving back to the city. And the whole time, my brain, I was starting to think about what a book looked like. What would be the order of chapters and the table of contents? And by the time I drove, got home, I had it all written in my mind, at least like the table of contents. And I wrote it all down and I emailed him. And I said, let's do this. And here's my proposed table of contents. And that was in 2015. So if you're thinking about writing a book, anybody listening to this, this is a six year uh, journey. And so he then emailed it, you know, back his comments of what he would add. And, and so then that took a long time to figure out how to draft a proposal. We had to ask colleagues and friends of ours who were writing books and had done that part. And then you had to get an agent and that took us like a year. Um, and then the agent spent a year with us working on her proposal. And then we had to like pitch it to publishers and, you know, we only had one publisher make us an offer. So, you know, it's all, it's going through this book processing or writing uh, process is very precarious because at each stage, it's really hard. And at each stage, you really kind of do have to get lucky because the probability you'll have like four or five agents wanting you or four or five publishers wanting you is slim. Like very few people get those opportunities. So in the end, we kind of got lucky to get one and, uh, and then, you know, it was exciting. And we had, I think, a year to draft the book and submit the first draft. And I have to say then the pandemic hit. And so it was uh, absolutely brutal because both of us lost most of our childcare. I mean, his kids have been home the entire year homeschooling. My kids, you know, New York was the hardest hit, you know, city in the world for a while. And we were in complete lockdown with my kids at home trying to, and they're young. And I was trying to teach them online and then in the evenings trying to write this book and run and switch all my research in my lab online. And so I have to say it was just the most stressful year imaginable to, to do anything for all of us, but to do a book on top of it was 
I, I loved writing the book, but I hated doing it in the way that we did it. Um, it was just so stressful for both of us. Yeah, good on you for making that happen. Uh, <laughs> in, in, incredibly impressive. Yeah, I guess I was curious to ask more what the writing process was like because you know you were doing it during a pandemic and everything. So were there certain times um, that you wrote during the day? Did you? Uh, was it one of those things where you just you know okay I'm gonna put out this first draft, send it to Dom, and then you know get his feedback, and uh, I'm not gonna worry about making it perfect the first time. How did you, how did you start to approach some of this stuff during the writing process? Yeah, that's a great question. So first thing we did was we just outlined the book and outlined each chapter in the book, and maybe wrote like a paragraph or two summary of each chapter as part of our book proposal. Um, and if there are people listening to this in the field who are thinking about writing a trade book, I'm happy to share my proposal with them. Um, I, I, it was People shared theirs with me and it was so helpful just to see what goes into that. Um, the next thing is that we kind of assigned each of us to write different chapters. So I'd write you know, a chapter on polarization or social media and he'd write a chapter on dissent because that's his main area of research. So we tried to have people do the first draft of chapters who are real the primary experts in those areas. And then my goal is just to like get a decent draft, you know, a sloppy first draft, just to keep the ball moving and then send it to him and then get his feedback and he would edit it. And then in the meantime, I'd be editing his chapter. And we just kind of kept floating it back and forth between the two of us. And I'll, I'll say it was much easier to write a book with a co-author in the sense that you had an editor for every chapter multiple times. And by the same time we sent it to the book editor, um, we, we accidentally got the date wrong. We, we were racing to get our book together and we were worried we wouldn't hit the deadline for the first submission. And that we sent it to them and they're like, this isn't due for three months. We had like read our contract wrong <laughs> and we submitted and no one submits their book early, by the way. Like everybody submits it like a year late or six months late. And so they were shocked. Um, and then our editor was on uh, maternity leave. And so we had really no editor for like six months. And so just kind of the book sat there and we kind of did other stuff. And then uh, she came back and she gave us comments throughout the first round of comments. And by then it's like the talk clock is ticking to get the final version in. And so it's like, you have like a month or two to like make all her revisions. Plus by then we, we did, I think things that were smart, which is, well, it was on her desk. We were thinking about studies we missed or stories we wanted to add to enrich the book. So we were always kind of like working on it in the background, even if it wasn't on our desk. And so then she sent it back to us and we quickly made revisions and it went like that a couple of times with our editor. And at this time you're working with a book editor who's not a psychologist necessarily. And they're trying to think of like, how can you make the book accessible to people? And if it's not making sense to her, what are the problems? Um, and so those were the types of things that we went through. And we were also at that point trying to think of, you know, the book is, we're, we're Canadian, so it had lots of Canadian content and American, uh, but we wanted to make the book resonate with people around the world. So we spent a lot of time trying to think of like, what are stories that will make someone in the UK excited to read it? Or we use examples of like, other countries all around the world that we could think of that were relevant to our story, uh, our stories that were relevant to our studies. And so that's another thing we tried to do is think of like, what can we do to make this have, uh, you know, not feel like it's just written in this particular moment in history in this particular country. We wanted it to have stories that were from like the fifties and European soccer teams and things like that, um, that would make it resonate with a much broader audience, but also, be something that you would want to pick up and read in five years or 10 years. And it wouldn't feel dated. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you gave a, a little bit of summary about what the the book is about and what you were trying to do with it and how it connects your research about identity and group processes, how we understand ourselves in the context of others, how that's flexible and how we can and how we can use it uh, to just better ourselves, better society, all that sort of stuff. So I want I want to dive into a few of the topics that you you broach in the book and and get some further perspective on them. Uh, so one one open ended thing that I'm just sort of curious to to get what you make of is is what has helped you to most understand your own identity, um, and uh, yeah, so just a combination of, of research, self reflection. What 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 does that sort of look like for you since that book, since the identity, and how we understand our own identity in a sort of abstract sense is such a key part of the book. Yeah, one of the best ways to understand your own identity is to leave your context. So, as I said, I grew up in Fox Creek, Alberta, and I enjoyed being a kid in a small town in rural Canada. And it's really not until you get out of that that you realize what assumptions you took for granted and people react to you differently as you move into different environments. And so, you know, when I went to college, I felt like, you know, there was very few people probably I grew up with who had college degrees and sub our university, like four-year degrees, um, and certainly almost no one I would have interacted with in my life who had a PhD. And so all, suddenly in university, you're in a whole different uh, socioeconomic class. So that was shocking for me. I was also in an urban environment, so you start to realize all the assumptions of rural life that are built into your identity. Um, and then when I moved to the United States, I lived in Columbus, Ohio for a while. And that was your suddenly like your Canadian identity becomes salient and you start to realize all the things you took for granted uh, being from Canada. Uh, I live for, as I said, several years in Toronto. Toronto is one of the most diverse cities in the world. So you have incredible religious and ethnic diversity. There's all these different communities that are so different from yours. And that also gets you to reflect on your background and who you are and the different identities you have. Um, and then the other thing is, as you go through life, you pick up different identities. And so I, when I became a graduate student, that was a really important identity for me. And it alienated me from some of my family. They didn't know what a graduate student was. You know, they, my work was so esoteric and boring to them. Um, and so there's challenges when you leave an identity behind and gain a new one. Um, when I became a professor, it's another type of identity. And suddenly now you relate to your students differently. You have certain sets of responsibilities ways of acting, uh, you know, to, that you should embody uh, and their expectations placed on you. Um, and then now, uh, Dominic and I were joking that we have a brand new identity, which is authors, which is an identity I never expected to have and didn't really aspire towards. And now, you know, in my, and this impacts your life. Like you get asked to do different things as you acquire each of those identities. People treat you differently when they learn you have those identities. Uh, the opportunities afforded to you are different. Um, and so it's one of these things that you're constantly, and, and I became a father when I was a professor, and that's another whole crazy identity that is really actually quite radical, even though it's very common. So many people around the world have been fathers or mothers. It seems mundane. The act of doing it and the way it impacts your life and how you see the world is actually radical if you, if you take the role seriously. It affects so much of your life. And so th there are these challenges of navigating all these identities, reconciling them, switching on and off between one and the other. You know, when I walk in the door or pick up my kids from after school, it's like my professor identity is gone and my dad identity is on and they don't care 
what I did at work that day. They don't care if I published a paper or, you know, to them, it's like so meaningless. Um, they want to know like what I'm making for dinner or am I going to take them to the swimming pool to meet their friends? And so this is the thing about identity is that these are really powerful constructs. Uh, they change our life in dramatic ways. They can bring us joy and anguish. Um, and that we're constantly shifting between them and trying to navigate them. And I feel like the way, one of the things Dominic and I wanted to do with this book is to give people the tools to understand this, because I think many people take a lot of their identities for granted. You know, if, if you've lived or in one place your whole life or have a very homogenous group of friends on any dimension, whether it's your religion or ethnicity or nationality, it blinds you uh, to the experiences of all kinds of other people. And so we wanted to kind of open people's eyes to these issues and get them thinking more deeply about it in ways that help them navigate these tricky challenges in their life and, and the groups that they're part of. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, so I think I want to go back and talk about being Canadian as an identity. And uh, so you're a Canadian who spent most of his career in America. And as it turns out, among excellent company. So you've got Celine Dion, Justin Bieber, <laughs> Drake, Oscar Peterson, greatest jazz pianist of all time, uh, Joni Mitchell, Jim Carrey, uh, Pamela Anderson, Ryan Gosling, Ryan Reynolds, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson even, a Canadian citizen. So anyway, the list goes on. Uh, and my question for you, Jay, is, is why are all the greatest Americans Canadian? You know, uh, there's more. I would I would add Rick Moranis uh, to the list. <laughs> oh, the list. I mean, like I, I think I think if you made a list of great Americans, especially the the cultural touchstone, popular culture Americans, you'd just be making a list of Canadians. And I'm wondering I'm wondering what you make of that. What do you do? You think there's something systematic about that? Is there something that all all, all citizens of the United States should learn from the Canadian identity, the Canadian worldview? Uh, what What do you think about that? So as a Canadian, there's a couple interesting things that happen. First of all, we know all the names of all these people because there's like this enormous pride in all these Canadians that make it. Um, and Canada is like, Canada's a pretty small country. You know, it's about one-tenth the population of the U.S. And, you know, most Canadians know all the major American cities and can name all the states. But if you ask most Americans, they can't name, you know, the 10 Canadian provinces. And so there's definitely like an asymmetry in how attentive we are to one another. Um, so Canadians take great pride in their successes because they always feel like they're overshadowed by America. Um, and, and I don't think Americans, other than you, if you are American, would know that most of those people are Canadian. They just assume that they're American. So, um, and then the other element of Canada, in addition to pride, is there's like this, this insecurity about um, losing talent to the United States. And so I remember growing up, there was always these, always these articles in the paper about brain drain uh, to the United States because, because the United States is just simply bigger and the markets here for many industries are, are bigger. The opportunities are, are often greater and American industries are often recruiting talented Canadians, you know, especially in the category of entertainers. For most of them, the bigger audience to sell records or uh, make better movie deals or TV deals are in America. And so there's always this kind of anguish that uh, America's stealing Canadian talent. And a lot of Canadians aspire for those opportunities. So, you know, we grew up on mostly American media. There's like certain rules in Canada where you have to have like a certain amount of Canadian content. So it means like there has to be a certain number of shows on TV that are made in Canada and a certain number of like 
records played on the radio station that are by Canadian artists. Uh, but well, most of what we get is American. And so Canadians grow up aspiring for all these kind of like American uh, institutions, like growing up on like Hollywood movies that are based in, you know, American cities. Um, I remember like being a little kid and I had probably the secondhand sweater that was like a Yale sweatshirt. I don't even know I had it. I never would have met anybody in my entire life, you know, until I was in grad school that went to Yale. But it was like these like American iconic institutions are adopted uh, and looked up to by Canadians. And so there's this weird, Canada has this weird relationship with America for, for all these reasons. Yeah, I, 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 I've certainly meditated on this topic before. And I think, I think part of it in my reading of it also has to do with what you were saying about you don't fully understand your own context until you've left it. And so Canadians yeah. in America are in an interesting place because they are strictly freaky, strictly speaking from a different context, Canada, and yet they're intimately acquainted with the United States in the way that you were talking about, that they understand what's happening here because, you know, they're, they're paying attention to it and everything. And so they're uniquely suited to, in a way, kind of um, almost exploit that, to be able to understand it better than than uh, understand what Americans want and what Americans are better than Americans themselves. And I feel like that's a Canadian superpower in a, in a certain way. I actually think that there is a superpower in that. Trevor Noah talks about this in his book, is that if you have a biracial or bicultural or binational background, um, you can be a bit of a social chameleon. On one hand, you might feel like you're never quite fit in. Um, and so there's some trade-offs or other people might send you signals while well, you're not a true American or true Canadian if you've left. Um, but on the other hand, it opens up all these opportunities to understand how other cultures work and connect with other people and generate these opportunities. So, so there's certainly trade-offs to it, but I tend to see it as mostly a beneficial thing. Um, having contact with people who are different than you and other cultures is often one of the most powerful ways not only to generate an open mind and understand your own identity, but to benefit personally in, in all kinds of ways. You become enriched by interacting with people who are outside your, your cultural context. So your penultimate chapter in the book is on leadership. And you uh, also have contributed to this column in science on letters to young scientists. And, you know, the word on the street among graduate students is that you're, you're generally considered to be an excellent mentor and people enjoy being in your lab. So I'm curious, based off, you know, what you talked about in the book, specifically around creating a common sense of identity and that sort of stuff, what are your best practices for, for mentorship and for running a lab? That's a great question. So one thing that happens in academia that I think is a big problem is we don't select or hire people on mentorship at all. Um, so I will, you know, I know tons of professors and they're excellent researchers and good at writing and analyzing their data in a way that it gets in, you know, top journals and that's what gets them hired. Uh, but very few of them are formally trained in mentorship. And I remember talking to a friend, you know, he got a, an academic job the year before I did. And I said, well, how, what are you, what's going to be your mentoring model? I said, and he's like, I don't know. I'll just go there. And I'll, once things get busy, I'll just like, my personality will come out. Like, He's just going to kind of like let it run on autopilot, I guess. And um, I was always kind of of the mind that I wanted to have kind of a conscious, deliberate philosophy of mentorship and uh, do it well. And so from the moment I got 
hired, I started reading about leadership. And I also, we study social psychology. So I, you know, not by being in social psychology, you should be familiar with the research on like groupthink um, and conformity and dissent and obedience. And so I've constantly tried to like slowly integrate those principles into the way I run my lab meetings. And it, it, sometimes it's as simple as like, if someone's presenting a paper um, as a professor, not giving us my strong opinion first, making sure that other people who are lower power in the room have a chance to speak and share their position. Cause I want to hear what they all think. Um, I crowdsource everything with the lab, um, you know, whenever we're working on a project or paper. So it's very much like everybody has a, a valued voice and we benefit from all of them. Um, you know, I try to think carefully from the cooperation literature about how to optimize uh, everybody's interests in a way that also aligns with the collective interest. So, you know, um, again, if someone shares their paper in the lab, they benefit from feedback and everybody else benefits from seeing their work and learning how to give feedback. And then, then they get to pay it forward that when they share their paper with the lab, the other person they helped out is going to help them. And so I'm constantly trying to like use those principles from the research areas that I study in a way that optimize collective performance. And I will say this is something that um, that shows for me. It's one of those things where when you first start setting up a lab, in my first year I had zero publications, zero grants. And, and it wasn't like I was submitting. I think I submitted papers to 10 journals that year and three granting agencies and just got rejected every time. Um, and I, I spent a lot of that time that first year trying to build up my lab, recruit smart, talented people and, and support them, but also try to build a culture. I had a lab manual and, and I tried to make things efficient so not waste people's time. And then now, you know, I'm 11 years in and I think our lab published like 17 papers last year, something like that. And my students won most of the awards in my department, you know, like most of the students. And so it's kind of coming to one of those things where I'm like, well, that's clearly not all me, right? Because I don't have the bandwidth to do all that on my own. I, it's because you build a culture and you create a system where everybody can flourish. And, and if you build a system, what one thing I think we found during the pandemic that worked well for our lab and they were, my students were telling me other students in other labs in other programs were struggling. And I, and I think it's because most people have like informal mentoring strategies, which is, you know, someone swings by your office to get feedback or they grab you after a talk to ask your idea about something they kind of drive by mentoring model. Uh, whereas what we've done is proceduralize things. Um, we have weekly one-on-one -on -one meetings, weekly lab meetings, monthly book club meetings, monthly writing meetings. Um, they have a lab scrum that's weekly where students help each other. A lot of things we are documented are on Slack. We have a detailed lab manual. And so a lot of our stuff is, our work has become, and our mentoring has become proceduralized. And through my columns, I've tried to write it down so they can access it easily. Um, and so what that means is, even in a stressful situation and during disruption, uh, people still have a supportive structure and kind of all know what they're doing. Um, and then the other thing I've done over time, I used to have this philosophy of each student does their own project. And what I've learned now is a lot of papers I write, I'll have four or five members of the lab all working on it. And we all pitch in and break up the work and all give each other feedback. And it makes writing really easy. People find it really fun and everybody's way more productive and the papers are way better. And so it's, it took me like seven years to figure that process out. So a lot of it's trial and error, but it's also using the science of the things that we study and read about uh, and turning it into a formal uh, model for how we run the lab. And so now the lab is so good. And again, most of it is, it's not like I've gotten any smarter. 
in fact, I'm probably more just busier and more responsible for more things and, and than I ever was. And yet the lab is more effective than ever. It's because I think we have really smart people all support each other and we have just a really good culture. So it's more about setting structures, I think. And I think academics should think about that. If you go into top organizations, this is what they do all day long. They think about structure and process and systems um, rather than just like one, we have kind of this model in science of like one genius, like our Einstein model, who's like the image I grew up with as a model of who science is, which is like some guy sitting in the patent clerk's office coming up with these like genius breakthroughs in physics. Um, that's a model that doesn't really make sense now for most of what we do. It's certainly not related at all to running a lab and being successful in a lab context. And most of the high impact work in the field now is collaborative. Um, you have students also the responsibility to mentor and train and, and help them be successful. So I think of it through a systems lens and, and then just being interpersonally and empathic and supportive. Yeah. Um, but the system is the key. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I could spend about four or five hours asking you about the details of all these things, but uh, we've got only a couple minutes left, and there's there's a little bit more that I want to ask you about. Um, so the the last chapter I found really interesting, and it's on the future of identity. And the sort of big question uh, that I want to pose to you is, what should our goals be around identity as a society? And so I have something sort of in specific, uh, specifically that I mean by that, which is that, so in that chapter you talk about uh, we need to solve these big global problems. And uh, one of your arguments you make is that is that developing this sense of shared identity is key, sort of like in, you know, how you have like an alien invasion movie, and then suddenly everyone finds it much easier to work together towards a common purpose, with a common sense of humanity. Um, and yeah, so that you, you, you make this claim that we need global leadership to, to help build this genuinely universal identity among enough of the world's people to overcome more parochial and narrow interests. That's quoting from your, your passage there. And uh, so I, I agree, I think this sounds nice, I think this sounds uh, plausible, but I find myself wondering what the, what the alternatives are. So what about a model where we retain our parochial identities and, and interests, but also take seriously the idea that outgroups, though they're not like us, still lead valuable lives, are generally decent people, and are people with whom we're gonna have to collaborate every now and then. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, yeah, beyond the space of just developing common humanity, what what do you think our goals is, as a society should be around identities? That's a great question. Yeah, so I do think we need higher level identities if we're going to solve the big problems like climate change or inequality. Um, I don't think that's the whole answer. And so there is this research in the identity literature on one of the best ways to address prejudice is to have dual identity models. And so you don't want to support an identity which people think threatens or undermines their specific parochial identities. You know, those are important to people. Often they're attached to cultural and social communities. And so it can be incredibly threatening if they're asked to suppress those. And it's particularly problematic if the subordinate identity is defined by a powerful or dominant group because minority groups often feel like they're coerced into going along with the subordinate identity. So first of all, you have to kind of get, create a support identity that's more inclusive to those perspectives and voices or you won't get buy-in. Um, but in practice, I, I don't wanna like lose the richness, the cultural interestingness of the lower order identities. I mean, I love meeting people from different cultures and learning about their culture. And, you know, I love, one of the things I love about New York is all the interesting different food from different cultures that I can go to and take my kids to. 
Um, and so I like making those elements of our social life vibrant and supported. Uh, but I also think we need to consciously think about how we build a subordinate identity or like a set of interdependencies that nudge us towards cooperation. And so I'll give you an example of where this, and, and this isn't easy to do. So an example where it's worked well, but also failed a bit, struggled during the pandemic was um, the European Union is an example of trying to do that, uh, build a subordinate identity. And, you know, Brexit happened and, the, and Britain left. Uh, and so you get reactants against it if people feel their lower order national identity is threatened. Um, and it looks like that might be, you know, a disaster for, for Britain in some ways, you know, economically, there's huge challenges. Um, but it can be helpful for them in terms of like developing and administering the vaccine really efficiently. You know, they got it delivered in Britain faster than other countries, um, even though Britain had struggled through other leadership problems throughout most of the rest of the pandemic. So it does seem like some things you need an effective national government to resolve or provincial governments or, or municipal governments and identities at those levels. Um, and so I, I think that you, to do the national identity, international identity right or national identity right is a challenge. Um, and, but I will say this, we've been getting better and better at it through history. So the proof is in the data, right? Um, we created the United Nations for this, the, the European Union. Well, there haven't been any wars in Europe since we created those. We had two disastrous uh, world wars. Uh, the level of deaths due to intergroup conflict has plummeted compared to any other time in human history. Um, international commerce and travel have increased. And so, um, you know, setting aside, I think, the problem of climate change, and then I would also say a related problem of inequality, these institutions that we built that are at the subordinate level have been incredibly successful at addressing the things they were designed to address. And uh, so I think that the building on those and enhancing those institutions is the way to go. I would not wanna go backwards and tear them down because again, just like the data that we have over the last uh, you know, span of human history suggests that could be absolutely catastrophic. So I think we do need to think about these things that we have and build upon them uh, in ways that enrich global cooperation, uh, or we're not gonna be able to address these issues. But I, I do wanna still affirm these other identities that people have that are a core part of their life. In fact, they're the central part of their life on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it's just not even gonna be feasible to get rid of those things without absolute outrage and protest. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so I wanna be respectful of your time here and we're coming up towards the end. So. Uh, Jay, thanks for taking taking the time to talk, and uh, thanks for writing a great book. Thanks, Cody. Thanks for reading it. I'm impressed that you got through it. That was my conversation with Jay Van Bavel. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, definitely go check out Jay's book. I'm super excited for him that it's out, and I think it is a really good overview of what is going on in this area of research and some ways about how to think about how it can positively impact society, which, you know, I believe it can, and that's why I got into the, the field in part. But um, you can also check out Jay on Twitter, at Jay Van Bavel. You can also check out his Substack, powerofus.substack.com. And then uh, if you want to follow me, you can do so on Twitter at Cody Commerce and definitely through my Substack newsletter, codycommerce.substack.com. 
If you want to send me a message, you can do so directly at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com and then on my website, which is my name again.com. So um, thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.